is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. On this EM Quick Hits, we have Swami on recess, Clayman on addictions, Rosenberg on dental, McDonald on optho, and Morgenstern on literature. On upcoming Quick Hits, we'll have Aaron Seyal on ortho, Emily Austin on talks, Natalie May on peds, Hicks and Brindley on human factors, Petro on trauma, and special guest David Yearlink on drug interactions. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. Swami on Massive PE. We talk about pulmonary embolism all the time, but I want to focus today on massive pulmonary embolism management. Massive PE is defined as a PE with hemodynamic compromise or signs of end organ malperfusion. This is the severe end of the PE spectrum where seconds and minutes matter and we have to make rapid decisions. So let me start with a case that I saw and use it as a framework. I'm working and a 73-year-old guy arrives via EMS from a rehab facility. He was at that facility after a trimal ankle fracture dislocation and he had a repair done. He was transferring from his bed to his walker when he syncopized and then when he came to, complained of shortness of breath. EMS reports that he is hypotensive and tachycardic in the field with a low O2 sat and on arrival, he's got vital signs with a heart rate of 153, a BP of 80 over 43, a sat of 94% on a non-rebreather and a respiratory rate of 32. He's pale and he's clearly working hard to breathe. When I take the non-rebreather off, he tells me he feels like he's going to die and his sats drop to 73%. Now, both in retrospect and at the time, this case seemed really straightforward. No real diagnostic dilemma here. Massive PE, that's clearly what's going on, and that means lytics. But pulling the trigger on lytics without imaging backing you up can sometimes be hard. It's nice here to do some bedside stuff to further convince yourself that this is what you're dealing with and then pull that trigger. On exam, the patient's lungs were clear, and this really narrows the diagnosis down. There's only a couple of things that causes shortness of breath or low O2 sats with clear lungs. That list to me is anemia, pericardial tamponade, metabolic acidosis from things like aspirin overdose or DKA, and MI, pulmonary hypertension, and of course, PE. Now, you can also throw pneumothorax in the mix because maybe it's too loud or you're getting transmitted breath sounds, and some people say carbon monoxide can have that similar appearance. This patient looks far too sick to go to CT at this point, and so a quick ultrasound can help us parse some of these things out if we're not sure. We did a rush exam, and there was no pericardial effusion, so tamponade is out. There's good lung sliding, so pneumothorax is out. There's no free fluid in the abdomen, so blood loss is unlikely. And when we looked at the heart again, we saw clear signs of RV strain, and the RV was larger than the LV. A quick EKG showed sinus tack with right heart strain, so MI was less likely as well. All of this info can be gathered in a short amount of time. It took us about four, maybe five minutes to get all of this stuff done. And with this information behind us, I was pretty sure that we were dealing with a massive PE if I wasn't 100% sure before. The American College of Chest Physicians, ASEP, the AHA, and the European Society of Cardiology all recommend giving systemic lytics to massive pulmonary embolism. It's nice to have a consensus. The dose, though, is less clear. There are limited studies showing that 50 milligrams may be just as good as 100 milligrams, but we simply don't know. I think it's best, though, to individualize the amount of lytics we're going to give to the patient in front of us. If the patient's young and healthy, I might go with the higher dose, knowing that their risk of hemorrhage is overall lower. And of course, the opposite is true for the older patient with multiple comorbidities. 
Let's go back to our patient. We held fluids on this patient, even though they were hypotensive, because we know that IV fluids can worsen the RV distension, and that can lead to worsening left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, leading to worsening hypotension. Instead, we started the patient on norepinephrine to get a reasonable blood pressure. This patient was healthy except for a bit of hypertension, but clearly on the older side. So we decided to go with the smaller dose, the 50 milligrams of Alteplase, over about an hour. As we were giving the thrombolytics, I remember that Josh Farkas had a nice discussion about targeted lysis in pulmonary embolism, and he recommended getting a fibrinogen level, and we can use this to predict the risk of hemorrhage, as well as guiding our subsequent administration of heparin. The patient's fibrinogen was just over 100, which is a bit on the lower side, and we communicated that information to our ICU team and held heparin at that point. We should not be giving heparin and the thrombolytics together. It's just a matter of when to start the heparin. We'll drop a link to Josh's post in the show notes if you're interested in reading more on this particular point. Over the next hour, the patient appeared more stable. They appeared less tachypnic, and so we went to CT for confirmation and then up to the unit. The patient did great. They got discharged back to rehab about a week later, and at that time, they were back to baseline function. One thing that came up afterwards was the use of catheter-directed lytics. IR has been doing this for years, though there's not really great studies on outcomes to show that this is the way to go, but it makes sense that it would minimize hemorrhagic complications and get that clot broken up. I've talked with a number of folks who do this, and they all say the same thing. When the patient is this sick, the big sick, the perihemodynamic collapse-type massive PE, catheter-directed lytics aren't the answer. Give the systemic lytics if you think the patient can tolerate them, and then when the patient's more stable, call in IR for consideration of those catheter-directed lytics. Here are my take-home points from this case. Massive PE is a true life threat. These patients are going to die, and they're going to die quick if you don't act, so get moving. You don't need a CT to pull the trigger on treatment. Think about what else could cause the clinical scenario and master ultrasound to quickly eliminate these causes and gain supporting evidence for PE. If the patient has PE with hemodynamic compromise or collapse, consider lytics, but do the other things that are important as well. Start a presser to support their hemodynamics and hold fluids. And finally, we don't know what the right dose of lytics is, so tailor that to the patient in front of you. All right, got it. PE plus shock equals act quick. No CT required, give pressors, not crystalloid for hemodynamic support, and give lytics. Now, as we mentioned on Peter Reardon's best case ever entitled Coding in the Scanner, if your patient is in arrest or in peri-arrest and you don't have time to look up the dose of lytics for PE, just start with 50 milligrams of alteplase or 50 milligrams of tenecteplase, whatever you got. Next up, we have Michelle Clayman, addiction medicine and EM doc, who you may remember from our recent episode on opioid misuse, overdose, and withdrawal. She's going to do an EM quickie on gabapentin in alcohol withdrawal. What? Gabapentin in alcohol withdrawal? Yeah, gabapentin in alcohol withdrawal. Who knew? I want you to picture the last patient you saw with alcohol withdrawal that you sent home from the emergency department. Do you remember if you sent them home with a prescription? What was it? Was it lorazepam or diazepam? Or maybe something else? Keep this in mind, I'm going to come back to it. Alcohol withdrawal is a fairly common presentation to our inner city emergency department, and our residents are well trained to manage these patients independently. Last Friday night, my resident came to review a patient that she wanted to send home. 
she told me the story of a 45-year-old male with alcohol withdrawal. It was not a diagnostic dilemma. He was drinking a liter of wine per day. His last drink was about six hours ago. He was trying to quit and had a bed lined up at a non-medical detox center. On presentation, he was tachycardic at 135, diaphoretic, vomiting, and had an obvious tremor. The resident appropriately ordered the COR protocol and the patient's symptoms resolved after a total of 60 milligrams of diazepam. She observed him for an additional two hours and then the patient was ready to go home. I asked him if she's going to send him home with anything or perhaps write a prescription and she said, yes, I'm going to send home with four 10 milligram tabs of diazepam in case he has withdrawal and write him a script for some more. At that point, my eyes got wide as this is no longer my own practice. But to be honest, about five years ago, I would have done the exact same thing. This was a great teaching opportunity. Benzos, as we all know, are first line for acute alcohol withdrawal and are often prescribed when patients leave hospital. I'd like to challenge this notion and suggest an alternative when you send patients home, gabapentin. Once a patient is adequately loaded with benzodiazepines with resolution of their acute withdrawal symptoms, there is absolutely no reason to be sending them home with a prescription for benzodiazepines. Their seizure risk is covered. We have a safer, better treatment for subacute withdrawal. Avoid the benzo-to-go option. Benzos are dangerous. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Benzos are a widely misused medication with a high potential for physical and psychological dependency. Alcohol and benzodiazepine codependency is a real risk. The streets are also flooded with benzos and the going rate in Toronto for 10 milligrams of diazepam is a mere $2. Benzodiazepines can be deadly when combined with alcohol, opiates, and other sedating agents. There are issues with falls, trauma, aspiration, and cognitive blunting. There's also evidence that benzodiazepines may be associated with early relapse to drinking and increased cravings for alcohol. So what are we doing? What are our options? One is to discharge patients with nothing. However, I recommend you consider gabapentin. Gabapentin is structurally related to GABA the inhibitory neurotransmitter that is underactive during acute alcohol withdrawal. It does not bind directly to the GABA receptor, and the exact mechanism is unknown. A study came out in 2009 by Murich. It compared lorazepam 6 mg a day, or about 60 mg of diazepam, to gabapentin for acute alcohol withdrawal for ambulatory patients. They gave the patients standing doses of both, plus rescue medications as needed, then tapered on day four. They concluded that gabapentin at a dose of 900 to 1200 milligrams per day is at least as effective as lorazepam. At the 1200 milligram per day dose, patients had less drinking on day one, lower COS scores, lower reported anxiety, and less cravings for alcohol. This was a small study, and the lorazepam taper was quite rapid, so there may have been some confounding variables. Gabapentin can also be quite sedating, so patients should be warned about the side effects. Nevertheless, gabapentin is a reasonable option. While this paper suggests monotherapy with gabapentin for acute alcohol withdrawal 
the evidence certainly is not robust. I tend to err on the side of caution. My protocol is to load patients with benzodiazepines in the eMERGE, either diazepam or lorazepam, and once they're comfortable, get them started on gabapentin as an outpatient. The dosing is 300 to 400 milligrams TID for four to seven days followed by a taper. I encourage you to try it out the next time you get that itch to prescribe a benzo to go. From our main podcast episode on alcohol withdrawal and from this quickie, we know that benzos are the first line medication for alcohol withdrawal. Uh, remember that some folks in the States are using phenobarb first line, but it doesn't have the track record that benzos do. We also know that if you adequately treat alcohol withdrawal in the ED, there is zero reason to prescribe benzos at discharge. Don't do it. Say no to benzos to go. But if you have a patient who you feel the need to give something a discharge, consider gabapentin 300 to 400 milligrams TID for four to seven days, then taper, and tell them to skip a dose if they feel too sedated. Next up, we've got Hans Rosenberg, EM doc and master educator from Ottawa, who you might recognize from MRAP Canadian edition. And he's going to give us some tips on what to do with the patient who's had a tooth bash out of their mouth. We have a 27-year-old male who comes into your emergency department after being punched in the face while he was just standing there minding his own business. You note that he has a very swollen upper lip, but most importantly, he's holding his right upper central incisor in his hand. You both realize this is not the ideal anatomical location. After assessing him for other significant injuries, you focus on his tooth. It has been out of his mouth for 30 minutes, and this leads you to ask yourself a couple of questions. What is it that has happened to this patient's tooth? Well, you've realized pretty quickly that this is a dental avulsion. Next, you say, well, nobody ever taught me anything about dentistry in medical school, so what do I do with this? Well, what we're going to chat today about is going to be how to replace or replant a tooth after it has been avulsed. You're going to start by finding the tooth, and you'll want to pick it up by the crown. The reason to do this is to avoid disruption of the periodontal ligament. The condition of the periodontal ligament, which attaches the tooth to the alveolar bone, is going to be vital to the viability of the tooth. PDL cells may be viable if the extra oral dry time is less than 60 minutes and if the tooth is kept in an appropriate storage medium. So what are, is an appropriate storage medium? Well, this is either milk, Hanks balance solution, saline, or even saliva. It's kind of gross, so it's the patient's saliva, not your saliva. PDL cells may not be viable if the extra oral dry time is greater than 60 minutes. However, this doesn't mean that the tooth can't be replaced. In cases where the PDL cells are not expected to be viable, the tooth can still be replanted for aesthetic and functional reasons. The expected outcome will be ankylosis and resorption with eventual loss of the tooth. If the tooth has been replanted before arrival to the hospital, so by the patient or their family member, leave the tooth in place, and stabilize it with a flexible splint. It's really not that important how perfectly positioned the tooth is, but rather that it's back where it should be, where the PDL cells can remain viable. If the tooth has not been replanted, clean the tooth with saline, ensuring not to rub the PDL cells. I know it gets annoying, but the PDL cells are really important. That's why I keep focusing on them. 
Next, you'll want to make sure you administer some local anesthesia for the patient, irrigate the socket with saline, and replant the tooth with slight pressure. Now is when you'll apply a flexible splint. So now you're saying to yourself, great, tooth is back in, what the heck is a flexible splint? Well, a flexible splint is exactly what it sounds like. It's something that's going to hold the tooth in place, but it does not require to be something that is going to be very rigid, as that's better for the tooth. Probably the last question that you guys have is, what can I use as a flexible splint? Well, some emergency departments have a material called Copac. Copac is a periodontal paste, which requires a base and a catalyst to be mixed together into a putty. You then apply this putty to the teeth and the gingiva. So essentially, what you're doing is you're sort of covering the culprit tooth, as well as the adjacent teeth and gingiva, in order to form a splint or something that is going to hold that tooth in place until they're able to see a dentist. Now, a lot of emergency departments don't have Copac. Well, there is a method that has been described using 2-octal cyanoacrylate. And I will give Dr. Hellman both the references and some pictures that you guys can look at to make sure that this makes sense in your mind. The 2-OCA is applied to the medial and lateral edges of the culprit tooth as well as the gingival margin. The flexible metal bridge from an N95 mask can then be cut to size. The end is rounded off so that the patient doesn't get cut. And then you can glue them into position across the teeth. So once again, what we're doing is replanting the tooth, applying glue to the medial and lateral edges of the tooth, as well as the gingiva. So that's kind of holding it in place. And then you're going to add your metal bridge as that flexible splint that goes across the three teeth. At this point, the patient should then be referred to a dentist for a bonded splint that can last for two weeks as per usual dental recommendations. As a small tip, don't forget antibiotics. Remember tetanus if necessary. And finally, the patient should be on a soft food diet. And once again, please remind them that they need to see a dentist usually within the next 24 to 48 hours. So get that tooth in milk or saline or the patient saliva, not your own, as fast as possible. You only have 60 minutes before that tooth is pretty much toast. Don't forget to handle the periodontal ligament like it's a delicate flower. You damage that, and again, the tooth is done. And finally, for a splint, try some 2OCA and a little piece of that metal nasal bridge thing from an N95 mask. You know how challenging it can be when you're faced with a squirming toddler who needs a thorough eye exam? Fear not. Anna McDonald, who you may remember from the EM Cases Course live podcast last year on ocular trauma, gives us her time-saving and frustration-saving tricks and tips on the pediatric eye exam. You're coming to the end of your shift, and you pick up the chart of your last patient, two-year-old Lucy. This evening, her five-year-old big sister was trying on her new karate moves and accidentally hit Lucy in the eye. From the door of the room, you can see she isn't a happy camper. Mom is trying to get her to sit still in the eye examination chair, but Lucy isn't having it. Examining this kid's eyes is not going to be easy. You take a deep breath, muster all of your energy, and enter the room. Kids are often stronger and more stubborn than they look. We all have tricks for looking into toddlers' ears and throats, often involving some form of restraint from the parent and then a bit of strong-arming on your part. But what about the eye exam? You can't just hold kids down and crank open their eyelids. You need some level of cooperation from them in order to really examine their eyes. 
How do you test a baby's visual acuity? What about a toddler's visual fields? How can you check eye alignment when the kid just won't sit still? As with anything in kids, when examining their eyes, you need to keep them happy and trick them into doing what you want them to do. I start just by watching them from a distance. This general observation already can tell you a lot about a child's eyes. Is their eye red? Is there any swelling? Do they look comfortable? Is there any discharge or excessive tearing? Now, if their eye's so painful they can't even open it long enough for you to see what's going on, they may need some tetracaine eye drops. But as you know, getting eye drops into a kid's eyes can be nearly impossible. They scream, they scrunch up their eyes as hard as they can, and they won't sit still. So the trick here is to use the child's own eyes to distribute the drops. With a parent holding the child, preferably either lying across their lap or with their head back to take advantage of gravity, make a little puddle of tetracaine in the inner corner of their eye. The moment they open their eyes, even a little bit, the medication will be distributed across the eye. Warn the parents that the child will be a bit unhappy for a short while, because the drops do sting initially, but then the freezing will kick in and they'll be much more comfortable. After I've deposited the drops, I usually wander off for a bit, just to let kiddos settle with their parents. Now you have their eyes open, you can get a sense of their visual acuity. It's pretty easy if they can read letters or identify shapes on a pediatric Snellen chart but it's a bit more difficult with pre-verbal children. With smaller children, they should be able to fix and follow. You can use a toy to get their attention and see if their eyes will follow it. If they can't fix and follow, see at least if they blink to light. This is a bit like the light perception only designation we use for adults. But remember, the attention span of a toddler is shorter even than the attention span of an eMERGE doc, so one toy might not hold their attention for long. This is where you bring out your secret weapon, the best tool we have for examining kids. You all know what I'm talking about. It's the smartphone. Best to use one belonging to the parents if possible, because the moment the kids get their hands on that phone, it is going in their mouth. But I will use my own phone if absolutely necessary. Go to YouTube, put on some Peppa Pig or Paw Patrol or possibly Baby Shark, anything that will catch their attention and keep it. And then use the phone to see if they fix and follow, and bring it up close to their face to check accommodation. You can also check their extraocular movements at the same time. When you have the child's attention fixed on a toy or a smartphone, use this time to check the pupillary responses, the eye alignment, and the visual fields. Pupillary testing is pretty straightforward, but alignment can be a bit trickier. When they're fixated on the toy or screen, cover and uncover each eye with your hand. Carefully watch the eye as you uncover it to see if it moves back to bring it back into alignment. I know we usually talk about this test in the context of benign childhood strabismus, but in the right clinical context, abnormal alignment may point towards more emergent issues like cranial nerve palsies or limitation of extraocular movements, for example, in orbital cellulitis. Subtle difference in alignment of the eyes can be difficult to detect, so use the reflection of the light on the cornea to guide you just as you would in an adult. Then you want to check visual fields. The key here is to keep them focused on something central, like the parent's phone, and then bring in another toy from the side. If you don't have another toy, a blown-up glove can do the trick. Just make sure the toy doesn't rattle or make a noise, because they'll be drawn by the sound instead of their peripheral vision. And now we start getting into the really tricky stuff, looking at the eye structures. Of course, if the child's old enough to cooperate with a slit lamp exam, your life is much easier. But if not, think about using the ophthalmoscope as it's a bit less intimidating for kids. 
Again, it helps to keep the child focused on something, like a toy or a screen, and then you can come in from the side to look at their eye. There's three main things the ophthalmoscope is useful for in the PEDS eye exam. The first is red reflex. An intact red reflex tells you there's nothing blocking your vision of the retina, like corneal opacities or cataracts or intraocular masses. Second, you can use it like a mini slit lamp to look at the anterior structures of the eye. You usually can get a good enough view to assess for corneal ulcers or pupillary abnormalities. I also use the cobalt blue setting on the ophthalmoscope to look for fluorescein uptake if I'm looking for corneal abrasions. Third, you certainly can try to get a view of the disc. Although if you have trouble with this in adults, kids are going to be almost impossible. The faster you can get a view, the better, so practice makes perfect. For the vast majority of pediatric eye complaints you see in the ED, these physical exam tricks will be good enough. But sometimes you need a closer look at the eye, or the child just won't cooperate despite your best efforts. Think about using your ultrasound. You can use this in the same way you would for an adult, to look at all the eye structures, and possibly to measure the optic nerve sheath diameter if that's relevant. You can also use an eye ultrasound to look at eye function, specifically pupillary response and extraocular movements. If all else fails, and you're still really concerned, you may need to use sedation to get a thorough eye exam. All right, quick review of the quick hit on pediatric eye exam tips and tricks. The key is to get and keep the child's attention. Start off by simply observing them from the corner of the room. If they don't open their eyes because of pain, use the tetracaine eye drop trick, that little puddle of drops in the inner corner of the eye. I use that one all the time. It's great. Visual acuity for preverbal kids? Well, start with seeing if they can fix and follow to your smartphone, and if they can't, see if they can blink to light. And while you're at it with the phone, check pupillary responses, and with the second toy, visual fields. You can even use the phone for visual alignment along with the cover-uncover test. That's it for the phone. Then there's the ophthalmoscope, and it's useful for three things. The red reflex as a substitute for the slit lamp, and to look at the fundi if you're quick enough. If none of this works, grab your ultrasound, a tegaderm patch over the eye, and some gel. And if that doesn't fly, you might need to sedate the child. Our last quick hit of the month is from Journal Jam host, First 10 EM, the man himself, Justin Morgenstern. And he's going to talk about the best resuscitation fluid based on the latest trials. EMS rolls in with a 60-year-old female who's been sick for a few days. This morning, she couldn't get herself out of bed, so her partner called 911. By the time the paramedics arrive, the patient is unconscious. Her temperature is 39, heart rate 133, blood pressure 85 on 55. While you're starting to gather some more information, you ask the nurse to start a bolus of normal saline. The resident gives you a funny look. I thought normal saline was the devil's water. So for our inaugural EBM segment, I figured we could tackle a relatively boring question, but a question that comes up multiple times every shift. What IV fluid should we be giving our patients? We're going to do a very quick review of three trials, two from this year, SALT ED and SMART, and then what I think is still the definitive paper on the topic, the SPLIT trial. The two new trials, SALT ED and SMART, were both run at the same institution at the same time. The methodology is basically the same. Patients either got saline or balanced fluid. The balanced fluid could either be ringers or plasmalite A. SALT ED looked at patients who were in the emergency department and who were admitted to hospital, but not the ICU. And then SMART looked at the ICU patients. In the ED group, they have 13,000 patients. 
The amount of fluid given wasn't all that big, about a a liter in total. Their primary outcome was hospital-free days, and there was no difference. So this is a negative trial. Now, one of the secondary outcomes, major adverse kidney events, was statistically better in the balanced crystalloid group, although the actual difference was only 0.9%. And, you know, this was a secondary outcome, so hypothesis generating only. Now, two big things to keep in mind about this trial. First, it wasn't blinded and it wasn't randomized, and that makes bias a lot more likely. Second, the only real difference seen here was in a doubling of creatinine. That isn't really a patient-oriented outcome, and more importantly, they didn't have a baseline creatinine for 35% of the population, which makes this outcome a little bit more questionable. Switching to the SMART trial, the ICU trial. Here they had 15,000 patients. Again, the amount of fluid was small, only about a liter for the entire ICU stay. They used a composite primary outcome, which is never ideal because it can combine things that really matter with things that don't matter nearly as much. And that's what they do here. The outcome was a combination of death, dialysis, and a 200% increase in creatinine. Now this trial was positive. The balanced crystalloid group did better for that composite outcome. But again, the difference is a tiny 1% absolute, and and actually when I do the math, the result isn't statistically significant. And if you look at the individual outcomes, none were statistically significant, and a 15,000-person trial can find some pretty small differences. And again, the main thing to remember about this trial is that it's unblinded and non-randomized. And with a tiny difference between the group, any bias that was introduced could completely change the results. So the two new trials are far from perfect, but they might hint at a tiny benefit of choosing something like Ringer's Lactate over saline. So let's switch gears and look at the split trial. This is the best trial we have, the trial with the best methods. It is a multi-center, double-blind, cluster-randomized, double-crossover trial in ICU patients. What that means is that they either use saline or plasmolite during a seven-week period and then they switch. So that sounds pretty similar to SMART or SALT-ED. However, in this trial, the bags were not marked. Everybody was blinded. Now, once again, they didn't use a ton of fluids, about two liters per average on patients. Their primary outcome was renal failure, and there was no difference between the groups, 9.6 versus 9.2%. So it's a negative trial. So what do we do with this information? One unblinded trial showed a small benefit to using balanced solutions, and two trials were negative. There was a secondary outcome that showed some potential benefit with saline, but there were a lot of secondary outcomes in these trials that were negative. This one's not an easy answer. I think the data shows that saline is safe to use. If there's a difference, it barely shows up in 15,000-person trials. It's a tiny difference if it exists. How this data affects your practice probably depends a lot on what you consider to be standard care. If before this data came out, you were already using a balanced solution, there's nothing here to convince you to start using saline. On the other hand, if you're currently using saline, I don't think that there's enough here to convince you to switch. I think it makes sense to think about each patient. If you have time, think not only does this patient need crystalloid at all, because often the answer is no, but what are their individual characteristics? If they're already really acidotic and you think you're going to have to give a lot of fluid, giving ringers makes sense because we know that normal saline has a very low pH. If we return to our case, a sick patient in the resuscitation room with undifferentiated hypotension, I will still use saline as my first choice. And the reason is a practical one. These studies don't show a big difference. They convince me that saline is safe, but 
you can run into some practical issues using ringers in the recess room. A number of important medications are listed as incompatible with ringers, Piptazo, TXA, blood products. In a really sick patient, I don't want that potential confusion. I don't want an important medication to be delayed because a nurse had to check a compatibility table or because they're waiting to ask me about it. So for the sickest patients, I stick with saline because everybody's used to it. In the less sick patients, if I have more time, I think it's very reasonable to try to choose the fluid based on the physiology of the patient in front of you. But that's definitely more of an art than a science at this point. Let's bring home these five quick hits with a review. First, for the unstable mass of PE patient, a CT isn't always necessary to make a decision to thrombolize or not. POCUS is your friend to help rule out other causes and to rule in PE. Watch POCUS Cases 1 on PE by Rob Samard to nail this one. Now, if you do use a lytic, don't forget pressors. A bit of norepinephrine is way preferable over crystalloid in these patients. Next, gabapentin and alcohol withdrawal. Avoid writing a benzodiazepine prescription when sending home patients who come in with alcohol withdrawal whenever possible. Instead, consider gabapentin, 300 to 400 milligrams TID for four to seven days, followed by a taper. Next, dental avulsions. For dental avulsions, you've got only one hour to get that tooth into milk, saline, or saliva. Then, just follow the steps in the show notes using the 2OCA and the N95 mask nasal bridge to secure that tooth. Next is the pediatric eye exam. For the squirming toddler, start with just observing the child. Then use the tetragain eye drop trick for kids with pain who refuse to open their eyes. After that, the smartphone is your friend. Use it to check pupillary responses, alignment, and visual fields with a second toy. And lastly, use the ophthalmoscope for the red reflex as a substitute for the slit lamp and for fundoscopy if you can get it. Now, if you still can't get a good enough exam, pull out POCUS. And as a very last resort, you'll need to sedate the child. And then when it comes to normal saline versus balanced IV fluid to resuscitate patients, based on the SALT-ED SMART and SPLIT trials, either normal saline, ringers, or plasmolite are acceptable resuscitation fluids. But if your patient is acidotic, avoid saline if you can. And if your patient needs fluid like now, and your team isn't so familiar with using balanced fluids... Saline is fine and it's safe. It's easy and it's practical. So that's about it for this EM Quick Hits podcast. On upcoming EM Quick Hits podcasts, we'll have Andrew Petrosoniak, aka Petro, on trauma, Emily Austin on talks, Natalie May on peds, Aaron Seal on ortho, Hicks and Brindley on human factors, and special guest David Yearlink on drug interactions. So until next time, together, we're smarter. Thanks for listening.